And there was one evening I turned to him and I'm like, do you think you can be Milana for one night? <laughs> I'm like, I just, at least a costume. At least help me out that way. <laughs> you don't even have to do anything. <laughs> How did he respond to that? Oh, God. He, he was like, I'll buy you as much candy as you want. And I'm like, you did not answer my question. <laughs> you can't bribe me with Kit Kats and Reese's Cups. You kind of can, but not entirely. <laughs> oh, no. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey guys, you're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures and the arts and scientists. Today we have a sex-positive painter and a Chinese pharmacist who found a treatment for the disease that caused more deaths in the Vietnam War than actual bloodshed. Uh, was it yellow fever? So, no. I... I'm actually talking about malaria, which is caused by a parasite injected into our body by a mosquito bite. While malaria does cause the yellowing of skin, uh, yellow fever is actually a virus and there is no specific treatment for it. It's not fun. Yeah, because when you cover leprosy, like, that was not fun at all. No, I mean, this is a little bit better than leprosy. I'm not going to lie to you, but it's still pretty awful. Okay. Let's see. With malaria, I do know that with how expansive the British colonization was, they were always drinking gin and tonics because they believed that there was a compound in gin that helped prevent malaria. Mm. It doesn't. It does not. You would have to drink like a ridiculous amount of gin and tonics to kill you. Like you would you would be dead. That's a that's a no. That's a negative. Oh. Yeah, that's all I yeah, got for you. That is not what my pharmacist came up with. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, fill us in on this woman who was like, I'm going to study parasitic invaders to the human body. So, vector borne diseases. Repel them? Is what they're called. Vector borne diseases. Vector borne diseases. Okay, that sounds a lot more reassuring and clinical than shit is living inside you and trying to kill you. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> You have bugs in your body that are killing you. <laughs> okay, so her name was Tu Yu Yu. Uh, that's T U. That's her first name, and then her last name is Y O U Y O U. And I did look up how to pronounce it, and that was what kept showing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna roll with it. Tu Yu Yu was born December 30th, 1930, in Zhejiang, Ningbo, China, so the east coast of China. Dad was a banker. Mom was a stay-at-home parent, looking over her and her four brothers. Her family valued education above anything else, just like almost every other woman we've talked about. Her parents went out of their way to get her and her brothers into top schools in the area. So private school after private school after private school, like, she was getting education. What year was she born? 1930. 1930, okay. I'm just thinking, oh, just, we're about to hit some historical... Moments in the timeline that might disrupt things a little bit. Oh, lady. <gasps> oh, lady. She was doing well in school, but at the age of 16, she contracted tuberculosis. 
I think we went all of last episode without a mention of TV. I don't know if we did. I don't think we did. I. <laughs> My favorite feminist brought to you again by tuberculosis. <laughs> Why is it so widespread? I don't understand. Oh my god, I'm okay. So, did her parents send her away to like a super swanky sanatorium to be cured of her TB, like out in the country? No, I have no idea where they sent her. But it did take her two years to get back. Okay. She eventually finished and graduated high school in 1951 after that two year stint. And I guess she, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, it's tuberculosis, so she really fell ill. And she was like, I don't ever want to feel like that again, and I don't want anyone to ever feel like that again, so I'm going to be a doctor. Straight up. That's so awesome. All right, nice. She's, she's so sweet. I love her. So after high school, she was accepted at the Medical School of Peking University. Her specialty was pharmaceuticals, as we touched upon. She graduated mm-hmm. college in 1955, and she ended up working at the Institute of Chinese Materia Medica, which was part of the very new Academy of Traditional Chinese Medicine, under the China Ministry of Health. So her first assignment after graduation involved schistosomiasis. That's, that's spelled S-C-H-I-S-T-O. That's not going to help us, but okay. okay. <laughs> so quick, quick rundown on that. It's caused by a specific kind of flatworm that just basically uses snails as public transportation. I'm just, I'm wondering how many there are of us right now, just kind of like wrinkling our nose, going, ew, like, (laughs) guys, I don't know why she's telling me this either. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's gross. Like, do you have to, like, touch the snail? Like, how does it go from a snail to a human? (laughs) The the snail is, is the vector. Basically, the snail hangs out in fresh water, and then they jump out of the snail while it's in fresh water and swim to find a human host burrow through its skin and live and procreate there usually in the intestines okay all right the probability of me being in a freshwater lake anytime soon a tropical area all right all right there's hope for us (laughs) okay so not the united states no 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 okay so ideally here in the united states we don't have to worry about this particular type of parasitic infestation through freshwater exposure of a stupid flatworm that's Swims off of a goddamn snail. Swims out of a goddamn snail, but yes. Ew, that's grosser. <laughs> that's the vector. They're in the vector. They live in the vector. And then when they're when it's time for them to go find a place to procreate, they go find a human intestine. All right. So what happens when they're in the human intestine? So <laughs> symptoms include rashes, fever, chills, cough, muscle aches, and then if left untreated, it progresses to liver, intestine, lung, and bladder damage. And the really nasty cases involve eggs of the parasite finding its way into the brain or spinal cord and causing seizures or paralysis. Oh, you lost me at the eggs. (laughs) I just, up to that point, I was going to make a quip about how I feel like anything you cover for the next 12 months could easily also be... Do I have fill in the blank or is it COVID? <laughs> but that sounds really distinct and unique. That me like, no, I think this might be something a little bit more. That's, I mean, no, 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 no. That's if left really untreated. Like really I, but severe still, cases. That's, so they start, they start as we, fever, but it, it also involves rashes. So you instantly roll out COVID. Okay, I'm going to be straight up. I would rather have leprosy. 
<laughs> Whatever. I didn't need that baby toe. That didn't even do shit for me. I fall off. You know what? I couldn't even lose the other one. That's fine. You know what? I don't have eggs in my spinal cord. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Needless to say, if you find yourself in a tropical area, don't swim in freshwater bodies and only drink bottled water. Wait, how about boiled water? Does that that do it? I mean, I'm sure boiled water will be fine. Okay. All right. I'm just, you know, asking for a friend. (laughs) Yeah, because you're boiling it. You're you're killing things. I doubt that these particular parasites are going to live anywhere past lukewarm or like lake temperature water. All right. Yeah. Well, if there's anything 2020 has taught me, it's that there are fucking sharks that live in lava. So, you know what? I don't know what to expect. (laughs) Wait, there are sharks that live in lava? There are sharks that thrive in underwater active volcanoes in the extreme heat. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, they don't live in lava. Well, I mean, if I was a shark, that's where I would hang out. I... They don't. They don't live in the lava. (laughs) But like, it's the shark underwater version of living in lava. So I'm putting nothing past this goddamn year. (laughs) Okay. So, Yu Yu was assigned to a research project that involved the Lobelia chinensis, which is the scientific name of the herb that was prescribed in traditional Chinese medicine for the treatment of schistosomiasis. I like how you get all Spanish with it. It's schistosomiasis. Gotta gotta get those uh, parasites killed off by the Lobelia chinansens. Is that better? Okay, we can put the Tennessee part of you away, please. <laughs> Actually, that's not. That is an exaggerated version of my Tennessee accent. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. Yeah, she co-wrote the pharmacological study with her mentor that involved this herb in 1958. That's the Lobelia chinensis. So that set a precedent. She now has experience dealing with parasitology specific to tropical areas of the world under her belt, specifically vector-borne diseases. The snail is the vector. She was able to find a way to apply traditional Chinese medicine to more widely accepted modern Western medicine. So truth be told, she was trained that way in college. I know within China there is just a a very deep history of um, natural remedies, so it's not surprising. No, no, no. They were very much like... Like, yes, we we need modern medicine, but also, like, these individuals in the past, they weren't all insane. There is some merit to it. I, th- I think that's interesting to be like, okay, this has actually been used for 100 years because they thought that it did fill in the blank. And be like, no, actually, it legit does fill in the blank in this, too. And Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, she was told early on to learn from the physicians before her and develop from there, to keep growing from mm-hmm. there. And that's exactly how she would continue to go about her work. But we're talking about China in 1958. So something huge is going on at that point, and that's a bit of an understatement. Megan? I've been waiting for you to mention the People's Republic. So the Chinese Revolution was in 1949. There was a four-year-long civil war in China, and the result was communism and the People's Republic of China, which is, again, why the Vietnam War happened, which was 20 years long, Megan. Did you know that? No. When did it kick off? According to the internet, it kicked off in 1955. We, as a nation, actually entered the Vietnam War in 1964. But the war itself, on a whole, was 20 years long. 
Yeah, like my grandmother, she, her two brothers were both in the Vietnam War. And I mean, she was straight up. She's like, when they came back, they were messed up. Yeah. Just the trauma that they had seen. Yeah. There were a lot of things going on. So I'm just going to say, fuck you, Kennedy. Fuck you, Johnson. Extra fuck you, Nixon. Kissinger. McNamara. All of them. Just yeah. fuck you. 20 years is... I already don't like war. Nobody likes war. I already don't support war. But 20 years. The to- I mean, that's what we're doing in the Middle East, though. I know. The total death in those 20 years ranges between 1,326,494 people and 4,249,494 people. That's a very big range. And we have that range yeah. because we lost count of how many civilian lives were lost. Just within the various um, countries mm-hmm. involved? Yep. Collectively? Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, you'd think there would be less boomers who love resorting to violence and escalated aggression after seeing what their parents did, but here we are. But I bring up the Vietnam War because it wasn't just guns and knives and bombs that killed these people. I could only find the U.S. numbers, but there were 40,000 reported cases of malaria in our troops alone. And I can only imagine the East Asian numbers were far steeper. I'm not going to go into any more numbers, but malaria should have killed more people than people did during the Vietnam War. So what is malaria? We hear about mosquitoes, but we as Americans are so far removed from it. Only about 2,000 cases make it to the United States every year. We don't have to think about it. So I'm going to make you think about it. Okay. All right. I'm thinking about it. Why not? It's caused by parasites who use mosquitoes as their public transportation instead of the snails from earlier. So I keep throwing around the word vector, but what is it? We're going to lean into that mode of transportation metaphor. It is any living thing, vertebrae or non-vertebrae, that transmits a disease to another living thing. So it's not a human-to-human sort of reaction. Rather, it's like if the vector, or in this case, the mosquito, was actually a plane. And in it were little wormy passengers equipped with Coke Zero cigarettes and disposable cameras, and then they land on their little island paradise for a long-awaited vacation. And when they're done smoking, drinking their soda, and taking their pictures, they just throw their cigarette butts and empty bottles all over the island, eventually causing the destruction of the environment, which, in this metaphor, would be the liver. Okay. Now, I don't want to think about it. (laughs) So basically, the symptoms of malaria, fever, vomiting, headache, yellow skin or jaundice, uh, and it can easily progress to seizures, comas, and death. Not ideal, but still better than eggs in the brain. Exactly. But still no bueno. So, yeah. in 1967, our girl Yu Yu was appointed by the Chinese government to head a secret research project called Project 523 at the Institute of Chinese Materia Medica. The sole purpose of this super-secret mission? Find a treatment for malaria. Okay. Was it her background in schistosomiasis? Probably. But regardless, this is a young woman taking on a task that was given to her by a government run by a dude who legitimately overturned her country and founded a new republic. So basically, when the leader of the People's Republic of China calls you up and is like, hey, I need you to do fill in the blank, you do fill in the blank. Yeah, you just do the damn thing. You leave your four-year-old daughter full-time with a nursery and your one-year-old daughter with your parents, and then you scour ancient texts for a clue as to where to start dog-earing at least 2,000 herbal, animal, and mineral prescriptions found in those texts, or at least that's what you, you did. Okay. So, and, I, and by, I mean, leave her kids 
neither one of her children recognized her when she came back for them. Oh, oh shit. Okay, wow. How long was she working on the development of this? For a while. Okay. The thing was started in 1967. And up until 1971, she was working with each and every one of these remedies on rats with malaria, and she was not getting results. Okay. Um, one herb kept jumping out at her. It was the artemisia plant, known, as, known in China as the King Hao herb. She had used it in her studies before, but upon reading the text again, there was one line in particular that told the reader to immerse the herb in room temp water. So in her studies... She was heating them like tea before administering them, and like that's that was the big difference. She was making the active compound in the artemisia plant inactive by heating it. She was basically mm. killing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So reduced temperatures of water, ethanol and ethyl, and then removing plant and stem after yielded a 100% effectiveness rate in the rodent trials. What? Yep. That is wild. They moved to monkeys. Same deal. Yeah. She was so sure that this was going to work after the rodent and the monkeys that she had to expedite the safety trials of her new drug in order to test on humans. Resources were scarce because of the New Republic. So she had to figure out a way to expedite the safety and do it like effectively instead of her constantly using resources to continue doing the trial over and over again. So she and two of her colleagues voluntarily took the medicine themselves. Wow, okay. Yeah. So that's how much faith she had in her work, and it paid off because once they got to the human mm. trials, again, 100% success. They turned that leaf into a powder capsule, and we still use that medicine today. So given that it was a secret research development on, well, during the Cold War mm-hmm. and then throughout the Vietnam War, I imagine that the people who had a cure and or treatment for malaria would be able to better aid their soldiers going back on the battlefield Oh, for sure. Did did they share it with other people right away, or was it... I don't think so. I mean, we lost regardless. <laughs> like... I mean, it's... Yeah, it's something... There are really no true winners, no. but... I mean, I can just see the strategic... Oh, they for sure. I imagine the reason they went came up with a super secret project to come up with a treatment for malaria, the thing that was killing most of their men, was to get an upper hand in, in the war. Mm-hmm. 20 years, Megan. That blows my mind. I don't know why, because we still have people out in fucking Iran, which I I don't get. The amount we spend on defense, and we could be spending to other things, like a real COVID relief program, or education. Or healthcare. Yeah, even prior to COVID hitting, it's, yeah. Yep. So, what happened after she successfully developed a treatment method for malaria? I mean, things slowed down a bit after that. She worked at the Institute for 60 years. It was a long, happy career. She hit the highest rank of research a researcher could get to in China and was also an academic advisor for PhD students, the students at the Chinese Materia Medica. And uh, basically, people forgot about her until she was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2015. Oh, wow. Okay. But yeah, that's uh, Dr. Tu Yu Yu, kicking butt. Taking names. Living a chill life in China. Saving lives. Exactly what she wanted to do. Finding that treatment must have been really satisfying. And to see the impact of it. And to know that because of you, you have legit helped save thousands of people from suffering from a disease like that. 
And then not only that, she didn't give up. She went years without any positive results. And she went over so many texts, 2,000 of them, just like over and over again. I'm sure it was like mind-boggling trying to like decipher everything. Yeah, but I feel like for people who are able to achieve things like that, like that's what is often not talked about is just the amount of hard work and dedication that goes into it. That It's easy at first glance for someone to be like, wow, you did such a good job. And be like, okay, well, how about like the six years where I just did research and everything failed? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what most people don't want to hear about. It's about not giving up, but that's definitely part of science. Like, In order for you to get those results, you have to get the negative ones first. Yeah, it's still positive information. It's not what you wanted, but it's still a positive impact for how to move forward. That's why we should invest in science. And the arts. And the arts. All right. Well, you had a lot of like really fancy scientific terms in your segment. And they just meant worms that fuck you up. I know, I know, but it's it's gross, and I'm not going to remember it, so I feel like you were just preparing us for a really not fun pop quiz. <laughs> and this is where I come in with the fun pop quiz time. Sex! Yes. All right, so, <laughs> oh, we're, we're going to have fun today. Um, what is the best proof to know that someone loves themselves? The best proof? Yeah, the best proof. That someone loves themselves. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I'm just thinking of that RuPaul quote. Something like, if you can't love yourself, how has anyone else going to love you? Or that, like that. that is it. That's actually the quote. If you can't love yourself, how are you going to love anybody else? That was a RuPaul trademark, not mine. Just throwing that out there. That is not quite what the answer is. Today, the answer is masturbation. Proof of masturbation, you mean? No, but if you love yourself, like, you're going to masturbate, right? I mean, that feeds on the sentiment of what RuPaul is saying, which is not exactly what he's saying. But you know what? self For most people, masturbation, yes. Self-love, yes. 100%. Those who are asexual, if you don't masturbate, it's okay. Little little asterisks up here. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. Yeah, we're not judging you. But for those who are sexual, if you don't masturbate, there's something wrong with you. If you say you don't, is you're it lying. Is it? Yeah, but for today's artist, that is the answer that she gave to an interviewer when asked why she always painted females masturbating. Uh, she said, "Quote: It's the best proof I love myself." That's amazing. Now, did she take yeah. pictures of it and then paint it, or was it ha- was she painting it while they were doing the deed? We will get to that a little later. But I love how you're instantly like, I need to know the sexual parameters of the incident. That's literally my entire life, Megan. I know, I know. Which is why when I was looking through to find an artist, I came across one of her images and I was like, sold. <laughs> yeah. Done. Yeah. So last episode, we were in Australia and Indonesian fiber art came up. I mean, I was all like, Cool. I'm going to find an Indonesian artist to cover. Who does that type of fiber art? And, like, I'll learn something, and then I can share it with you guys, and then you guys can learn something, right? Oh, <laughs> I think you uh, you bit off a little more than you could chew, Megan. You learned, you learned a little too much. <laughs> I found dicks and vaginas and tits, and I was like, Goodbye, Indonesian fiber art. Hello, contemporary painting, because that is what I am all about today. Okay, that said, last week I I did pinky promise to have a feel-good episode. Is it a feel-good episode? 90%. Ah! Yeah. Is it at least the beginning of it? Rags to riches situation? 
kind of. There's mention of sexual violence. Oh no. Yeah, and I'll I'll say when it's about to come up. So there's that and the fact my artist dies from cancer. But like ah. aside from that, this is this is gonna be a feel good episode. You know, like Sandwiched shit happens in terror, and you're you're still gonna like what I've got to say today. <sighs> okay. So even with all that, I think you guys are still gonna love. I gustai ayu kadak marneyash. Okay. Also known as I G A K marneyash. Also not known as Mernie. Mernie. Let's stick to Mernie. I'm I'm going with Mernie. <laughs> Mernie 2020. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. Hey, you had the dad joke the last two episodes. I am not apologizing for my puns. <laughs> I at least get one in. <laughs> okay, and on the note of dad jokes, I was sharing my monkey business transition from last episode with my partner slash your brother and you know what he did he laughed because he thought it was funny so that's what you're up against there's two of us against (laughs) one of you we are very supportive of dad jokes and puns in this household (laughs) i'm sure it would be you and scruff against us you know what i can i can handle my own against both of you you guys need each other for the strength Make each other stronger, <laughs> faster. <laughs> All right. So apologies if I'm mispronouncing things. For the life of me, I could not find a single English video saying her name. Like in all of American Google. Not one. Today, we're visiting where all wannabe Instagram influencers love going. Bali. Which, okay, fun fact, you can be jailed for staying in a hotel room with a person of the opposite sex if you're not married. Still? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is actually like a newer law on the books. How new? Like within the last five years. I'm... What? Yeah. So, just a little fun fact for you. So, Bali is... It's one of like a gazillion islands that make up Indonesia. And that's like the largest island country on Earth. And falls right along the equator in Southeast Asia. So, we're not that far from your China today. And it's just a little northwest of Australia. So we're visiting the country in the second half of the 20th century. And like by then, Dutch colonizers, they've been kicked out. First president has been overthrown and we're in the new order regime part of their timeline, which I feel like anything called a new order regime sounds like super sketchy, but I'll cover that in a sec. So we have we have two new orders this time around. New People's Republic of China. Yeah. And a new order regime. One just lasted a little longer than the other. And hey, on mine, they like... They they got rid of their communists. Yours did the opposite. I don't know why, but my mind went straight to stormtroopers. I mean, dictatorships? Stormtroopers everywhere. Marnie was born in 1966 to, in Bali to a poor family. And I just want to shout out art historian Dr. Wulan Durgan Toro, who has extensively written about Marnie along with other contemporary Indonesian women artists. Did you read it? Did you read the whole thing? I did not read her entire 300-page thesis, but I did read two chapters of it. 300 pages? This is why I'm never... 312. This is why I'm never getting a graduate degree, because they want a thesis. I'm not about to write 300 pages worth. Not doing it. I mean, arguably, there's a certain point in our podcast research where you collectively have done that. I guess in, like, 
over a year and a half, you can make 300 pages happen. Okay, there's a little hope. Keep going. So her work was super informative. One issue that I know you and I are having is that stepping outside of kind of Western art and science canons and trying to find people to research, there is just a depressing lack of biographical information about people. And some of it is a language barrier. And some of it is that you know, we don't have access to academic resource libraries. So we got to find what's on the Google. There's a there's a D&D spell called Comprehend Languages where you spend 10 minutes in the game to prepare it and then cast it and you can speak any and every language in the entire D&D universe. And we need that right now. That would be super useful because then I could have watched all the Indonesian videos about our artists today and I would have actually understood them and gotten a little bit more so insight. There you go. We just need to live in the D&D universe. I don't know if I'm cut out for that. The heck you are. If my listening of D&D podcasts and playing of D&D campaigns have taught me anything, the most unlikely people can kick butt and thrive in the D&D universe. Thank you. you just- you just need a few dice. Yeah, but so because of the the thesis writing of this art historian, like I actually was able to come across biographical information. So a good bit of this was based off of the work that she did, which which I'm super appreciative of, even though I'm only covering like a s- small fraction of it. Thank you, lady, whose um, name I cannot pronounce. Doctor. Doctor Wulan Durgan Toro. Doctor Wulan. I'm just gonna go with Doctor Wulan. We can go with the first name. It's informal You here. rock. So because of her, we know that Marnie, she was the 10th child of a farmer. Growing up, they they were moving quite a bit. And at the time, there was a governmental policy to get people out of the highly densely populated cities and out into the country. So I mean, overall, the New Order regime was very instrumental in every aspect of people's lives. So it was just one of it. So they were moving because of the government. So exact dates are spotty for Marnie's early years, but she was about 10 when she went to work as a domestic worker for a family, and they did help fund her education later on. Aww, they like kind of adopted her? Yeah. Kind of? Yeah, as much as you adopt like a 10-year-old who is now essentially your servant. What what is that, serfdom? Uh, Well, today we're going with a domestic worker. So... Here's the heads up. Oh, no. For the sexual assault. Okay. Jump 20 seconds if you want to skip it. Mernier was raped by her father. I'm sorry, by her brother? No, by, by her, her father. By her father? Either way. What? Yeah. Why? Well, there's no reason to it because he's an asshole. That's disgusting. That's awful. That's... Yeah. yeah. In In later years, like, she opens up with it about interviewers. So knowing that, it is not surprising that when she was 10, she went to work as a domestic worker with another family who, like, literally moved to a different island, like, and she moved away from her family and was completely separate from them growing up because that was her way out of the situation. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And then later on, there was no mention of her family because she does move back to the area and there's no mention of her siblings, so... I don't know what those family relations were like, but most likely, and I'm just going off my own gut feeling, which is absolutely just speculative, but she probably wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah, I don't blame her. Yeah. 
So by her late teens, she's working at a textile factory that the family she worked for owns. And at the age of 21, 1987, she moves back to Bali. So she's back in Bali. Marnie meets a man. She gets married. And then she divorces him. How many years was that? Uh, I don't know exactly. Well, no, we do know exactly. You'll hear about it in a sec. And like from the outside, you're like, okay, cool. Like they're both like probably young. Like shit happens, right? Well, because of a surgery Marnie had removing an ovarian cyst, she wasn't able to have children. <gasps> or at least it was extremely difficult for her to he have children. left her? Not quite. So culturally, you know, women are really stressed to be wives and mothers. So when her husband wanted to take a second wife, uh. she wasn't cool with it. But he was also like, yeah, but I want children. Oh, no. That was customary. Like even the president at the time had multiple wives. And this is in the 1980s. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm I'm all for polyamory or multiamory, like, but if 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 one person isn't cool with it, then it's no longer cool. Just throwing yeah. that out there. She was not cool with it, and she was most likely the first Balinese woman to file for divorce. Nice. Yeah, it, it took uh, three years for it to be finalized, and that finally happened in 1993 when she was 27. Because mm. I mean, like, custom like law at the time didn't even really facilitate divorce at all. Now, during this, Marnie, she's living through the new order regime. A general took power the same year Marnie was born. That's 1966. And Indonesia, by then, they had only been independent from the Dutch for like like a little over a decade. So this general steps in, stages a coup, and overthrows the first president. And a half a million people were killed in the process, at least. Jesus potentially up to a million the numbers are kind of a little uh, unreliable after half a million damn yeah so communists were wiped out like they did not want them in the country at all so that's where they differ a little bit from china and also wiped out was a leading feminist group oh no and like they were just advocating for basic equality for women like equality in marriage because like we learned they don't have that yeah yeah you know the right to be elected as a leader within your community was a no-go at the time that was not allowed and essentially just to be active contributing members of their communities in the 90s this is back in the 1960s as as the coup is taking place so when there was that shift in power this feminist group they were slandered in propaganda as these like sexually immoral murderers that were complete enemies of the people the idea stuck Mm-mm. and it is it is still impacting the idea of feminism within indonesia today that's insane like it's th- that word still has so much baggage within that country like even in terminology preference is giving to using gender and not feminism because there's still really strong association that being a feminist means that you're like a man-hating leftist lesbian who's probably a criminal i mean that's kind of what we're thought of here, too, but not to the extent I'm sure that Indonesia is. Yeah, it's just, it's a little different in the levels of just how yeah. pervasive it is. Yeah. So that's one similarity that we have that's really kind of crappy. Like, even though the New Order regime ended in 1998, the effects are still felt within the country. So after Marnie's divorce, she starts working under the artist Aidewa Puto Moko who paints in a traditional Balinese style, and again, could not find a reference for pronunciation, so, lo siento, soy americana. 
In the type of Balinese style and artwork that this guy is doing, traditionally the narratives are religious, but he depicts more like common daily narratives within his paintings. I like visually the perspective is flattened a bit, kind of similar to you know how medieval art can be. Where are the shadows? Um, kind of. You're right. Like there's still shading, but there's not really that depth of field, and so yeah. it's it's a similar principle within the style. And two, by flattening things, you can fit more of the story on the canvas, which, you know, they were all about. So overall, there's there's lots of movement, you know, line and colors treated the same, which kind of, you know, it's stylized the piece, almost makes it like a graphic novel kind of vibe. And Marnie, she's learning this from Mocha and later from an Italian artist, Mondo Zanzilli. And Marnie had worked for him, the Italian, and they fell in love. Aww. Yeah. And so after that, they were, they were partners. And so her, the Italian, and Moko, they're all working together creating art. See, this we're getting some feel-good stuff. Okay. Yay! Yeah. So Marty's partner, Mondo, he remarked later that out of the three of them, like, she was the most creative. And they're all super supportive of one another. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. They would just, you know, like, talk art and culture and about movies and just about what they were doing. And it just, it seemed like it was just a really great friendship between the three of them. So two years after her divorce and after she's picked up painting, at 29, Marnie starts exhibiting her art in 1995. Like, no big deal. I'm just going to learn from this one guy and then start exhibiting alongside him. And the art that Marnie was exhibiting was later described as groundbreaking Polynesian art. Ooh. Yeah. So. Is, it, is it because of vaginas? That's just one aspect of it. Okay. Is it because of dicks, too? That, that's also just one aspect of it. There's a lot of aspects. <laughs> and sometimes as is multi- to her paintings. <laughs> it's, that's where we are today. Like, her art is amazing, and I love it. And I think as soon as you Google it, like, you're going to super love it, too. Okay, I'm Googling now. All right, so she learned painting, like, the conventional way. And... The techniques that she was learning have this really rich cultural history. And Marnie was like, cool, cool. I'm going to paint some dicks <laughs> and vaginas <laughs> and maybe some tentacle things. Te- really? Oh, and shoes. I'm definitely going to paint shoes. What? Yeah. Can we go back to the tentacle thing? Was she? This isn't Japan. Everything's super stylized. Okay. You take a look. You'll see what I mean. Well, first I need to find her. Oh. Yeah. Questions. Already questions. So, Amorni took the basics of what she learned and she ran with it. And she developed a very unique, unrecognizable visual vocabulary, which is a very nice way of saying her work was fucking weird. And I love it. Sorry, this woman is shoving a hand through her stomach and grabbing her hair and pulling it. Yeah, they're weird. They're weird. Okay. Continue. Sorry. (laughs) So... Marnie sticks to flattening perspective. She uses bold line work and these like solid pastel colors, which makes her work like cartoony. But what she's depicting is really weird. I mean, it's like you said, there's one, there's like a feminine figure, but like her fingers are going through herself. And then there's like this hair snaking around. But then in a lot of the paintings, there's like these vulvas, but they almost look like eyes with eyelashes. But you're like, no, that's actually pubic hair. And then there's, there's, like, a weird chicken claw attached to it. Oh, that one. I really like that one. (laughs) 
so she's always depicting the human figure, but it's it's warped and it's disjointed and things are exaggerated and she's emphasizing these distorted proportions of hands or legs or genitals. And like looking at her paintings, you can tell she's telling a story, but you're not really sure what. Okay, this vulva, there's a fish hanging from it. Like Yes. From the inside, like a tampon. There's a fish that's eating at her birth control. Oh, is that it? That's the one? Okay. Yeah, I no, I don't right. I don't remember the title exactly, but that's along the lines of it. So, like, you know, I mean, maybe we haven't had fishes going after our birth control methods, but, like, we've all had <laughs> those small challenges. And looking at her work, I'm like, this is weird, and I instantly relate to it. I don't even know what I'm looking at, and I feel a connection. <laughs> oh, my God. Because they're, like... Like, they're weird, but they're funny, too. They are funny. I kind of want a big a big one, a big print of this, one of these. You'll like this one. There's one that's like a side shot of a giant penis. And, like, hanging onto it, like, dangling off the shaft is a female figure. And the title of it is Happy to Be With Him. Aww. Like, what? That's, like, the best shout-out you can give your partner <laughs> ever. <laughs> Even the content we're talking about right now, your mother might have tuned out. We might have lost her. I'm we sorry. Okay, I'm not sorry, but, you know, there's always next episode to look forward to. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Yeah, so that one's really fun. There's also another painting where it's just a giant erectic, and it, the figure attached to it looks it's like... a woman. Well, no, almost like you can't really see the face, but it looks like, like the... Their penis is so big, they can't even stand up. They're just laying on the ground. <laughs> oh, my God. This one, we have this woman on her side with the plants, something going up her butt. She's going up her butt. You know what? Looking at her paintings and trying to describe them is almost like trying to describe a dream you had. Because hearing that from you, I'm like, that sounds really stupid. But I also have looked a lot at her artwork the last few days. And so I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure I know which one she's talking about. Uh, (laughs) And then this one over here, this woman's on her side. And it looks like those, uh, you you know how when you're in the pool and the things uh, that are telling you where the lanes start? That like that string of plastic. It looks like that string of plastic instead of making lanes is going up somebody's butt too. No, I don't. Okay, I don't know that one. <laughs> okay, have you? This is like a weird swapsies. Have you seen the one of the leg with the shoe and the blue ponytail? Uh, you mean the two vaginas smoking a cigarette? That's the one. Yeah, <laughs> that one's called Party in Bangkok. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, so oh. Marty's work is unabashed and unapologetically, unapologetically sexual and direct and fun and weird. And there was nothing like this on the art market in Indonesia. Oh, my God. This is wonderful. Yeah, like the closest person we've covered who's had a similar type of sexual imagery is Christina Ramberg, who was a Chicago imagist that we covered last mm-hmm. season. Oh, yeah, I remember her. Yeah, she worked black and white and had these, like, kind of... They were sexy drawings. They mm-hmm. were not quite the same level as They this. weren't giant dicks. They were not giant dicks. Or there's one that's, like, a basket of tits. 
Basket of I haven't bitches. seen that one yet. I'm still scrolling. That one, I'll be happy to say, was included in the thesis research of our art historian doctor. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, see, these are these are the rewarding things you get when you really do your research. Oh my god. Yeah, so her stuff is, is weird and wonderful. And Milan, like you and I as foreigners, like looking at it, there is a good bit of cultural context that we're just not picking up on. Really? So Indonesia is a majority Muslim country and sex and sexuality are not typically public topics like at all. Mm. And when women do talk about it, it's like automatically assume they're talking about it from a personal experience. Mm. So growing up, Marnie, she lived in a culture that like really emphasized concepts of what was called the five duties of women. That is to be a loyal companion to their husband, procreate for the nation, educate and guide their children, keep house and be a useful member of society, all while being true to women's nature, which is soft and passive and the weak sex. Gross. Yep. So she just painted a bunch of dicks instead. None of that <laughs> describes what Marnie was creating like, at all. And that type of ideology of, like, the five duties of women, that was really pushed by the New Order regime. Oh, man. And then there's, like, another facet of it. So within Polynesian cos- cosmology, there's a purity ranking of the body. So shoulders up, that's pure. Your torso and your arms, that's, like, neutral. But from your waist down, that is impure. Most of her drawings are from the waist down. Yeah, and you'll notice she, like distorts things so your waist down might technically be above the shoulders or the head and whether or not that was in defiance to those ideas or if she was just indifferent to them like i can't say i really didn't come across any first person kind of insight you know there are no journals that i came across in terms of you know marnie describing the how and why of what she was doing so all it's it's just kind of speculation One theme in her art that is much broader than her cultural background is the fact that she's depicting the female form outside of the male gaze. And I mean, that really transcends from culture to culture. And that's something like with my own artwork, I'm super all about. You're like, oh, are these wrinkles? Are these stretch marks? Fuck yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna make super close up painting that's three by three feet about it and you can look at it. Look at it. Hey, if you want a picture of my cellulite, you can. I can. I can send it your way. Uh, I've I've got enough material to work with right now, so uh, thank okay. you though. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> so the male gaze in the art world—it's been the default for like way too long. And our art historian, Dr. Wulan, she notes that like Murney taps into this overt female sexual desire, and that's usually pretty off-putting when the male gaze is the default. Mm, yeah. So for Murray's work to really be popular and to hit kind of critical accolades within the country, it really took a good bit of shifting social dynamics, which I'll touch on in just a sec. But what was really important to her artwork getting out there is Murray's relationship with a gallery owner who ran a gallery that just showed women artists. Nice. Yes, the woman's That's name rare. Is- Mary Northmore. I think it's since been taken over by another gallerist who's opened it up a bit more. But in the early 90s, 
that was a really important gallery to be able to facilitate the work of women artists. And so from initially showing 1995, over the years, Marnie's art, it was shown across Indonesia and internationally. And initially, there was reluctance to exhibit her work. So Marnie, she was not formally educated, well, not formally art educated, and gallery owners thought that the content would displease the more like conservative big money backers of the galleries. Right. So they were like, yo, you don't even have a degree. And also your work is kind of weird. It might weird out some of our, well, I mean, they're kind of weirdos in a sense, but it might weird out our weirdos. <laughs> so Marty's work was able to get out in the public eye because in the mid 90s, that new order regime basically crashed and burned. Oh, dear. Yeah. So in 1997, there was an age. Asian financial crisis, and just without economic stability, it was a chance for kind of a new type of government that was more democratic to come in and push out, essentially autocrat leading the country. And the period after that, after 1998, is when that officially ended. It became known as Reform Asti, or the Reform Era. And like, things opened up, like attitudes became a little bit more loosey-goosey, a little bit more liberal, and suddenly there was room to publicly explore Previously off-limit subjects. Wait, you're telling me she wasn't painting people masturbating before that? Where are those paintings? I only got the giant penis. I know. The paintings that I was able to find, like, a concrete, legit date for kind of only create back to 1999. So in terms of what she was showing in 1995, I'm not sure. Interesting. Yeah, and that that's another issue where, like I mentioned earlier, we're kind of stepping out of our Western bubble. That simply might be the fact that those dates and resources are out there. They're just not, they don't happen to come up within an English search on the internet. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure because I did look into that. I wanted to see if her work maybe got a little weirder after the end of the New Order regime. But even if her work did become more explicit or not, I mean, overall, it was really good for her art her creative career. She had a solo show in 1995, but then it was the one she had in 2000 that was really important. And that was held at what was cons- what is considered the unofficial art center for Indonesian contemporary art. And that really helped launch her fame. But like also like the content Marnai was making like also helped reinforce the more liberal attitudes of the day. And uh, there was another art historian who noted that quote, it was the time of sexual liberation where women could relate to Marnie's scenes and sexual symbolism because for so long the idea of sex and female desire were viewed as subversive ideas and their female desire were viewed as subversive ideas and therefore taboo under the New Order regime. It's not dirty. No, it's not. It's not. And so in a way, the more liberal attitudes like foster her creativity, but then also the type of content she's putting out also fosters those more liberal attitudes an opening up of a topic like that. Yeah. Everybody's exploring. Yes. And some people wish to stop exploring. Why? So just like there was pushback after the conservative era, there was pushback over this fairly brief liberal era. Like a a law passed in 2008, which is very open-ended in its wording in what it considers pornographic. And it describes it as, quote, any image, sketch, illustration, photograph, text, noise, sound, moving image, animation, cartoon, conversation, 
body movements or other forms of message through media and or public performance that contains lewdness or sexual exploitation that breach society's moral codes. I think they've covered just about goddamn everything. What? Yes. What? So, with a law like that, it had a fairly chilling effect on creative expression. Because, I mean, just about any of her paintings would qualify potentially for that. Now, its enforcement is a little spotty, but just the threat of it, I think, is what was intended. Is that still in effect today? It is. It is. And that version, so it was initially slated to be passed in 2005, where there was a rise in uh, more conservative Islamic parties. But over the years, the law did change a bit. And so that's the watered down version of it. Whoa. But the, and because there was a lot of public backlash when it was initially proposed in 2005. That's insane. Yeah. Like a, a lot of artists have said that they either self-censor because of that or they either show to select private audiences or they just show their work abroad. Now, Marnie did not live to see that law passed. In 2006, at the age of 40, she passed away from cancer. 40! Yeah, because, I mean, think, she would be, like, what, uh, uh, 54 today. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, 10 years after she passed, there was a really large exhibition in Bali of not only Marnie's work, but also of other contemporary Indonesian women artists. The writings of our historian, Dr. Wulan, and other curators, they're keeping the work of Marnie's in the public eye and alive. But not in Indonesia. Well, yes. So within Indonesia, there isn't, there hasn't really been a governmental emphasis on supporting the fine arts. So it falls more on individuals and organizations to like maintain and preserve contemporary Indonesian art. Yeah. And so it's work like our, our Dr. Wulan Jorgen Toro, who is really helping to contribute like her and others to emphasizing the work of what Murnie is doing and what other artists are contributing as well. And so, I mean, from an English language perspective, like the what she was writing, and there's other two other curators in particular who they all collaborated on a book together. It's in English, and that's why I was able to read about it. That's awesome. Yeah, so they're really trying to, you know, kind of keep it alive, keep it going. Keep it thriving. I'm not sure what the status of Murnie's, like, estate is. Her artwork is in private and public collections, like the National Gallery of Australia, which is pretty badass. It's, like, scattered everywhere. I'm not sure. There's no particular uh, collection or, like, gallery space for her work. So I'm not, like, I, I can't speak. So that was a little bit frustrating. I think just trying to preserve work like hers is still a little bit of a work in progress right now. I mean, like, our, our historian and some of the other curators, they they put on a show of contemporary feminist art, and they were examining Indonesian art through the lens of feminism. But even a lot of the artists who participated were adamant that, oh, I'm not a feminist. There's still pushback about the ideologies of it. Part of it, because there's that baggage from the 1960s, but also the view that feminism with a capital F is like a Western import that like threatens traditional cultural ways. There's just, there's a lot to it that I feel like as outside researchers covering this in one episode, we're not going to be able to fully appreciate like at all. But if you would like to read the full 300 page thesis, I'm sure there's going to be a link to it on the show notes. Oh, for sure. And the publication that she did with the other two curators as well. So we gotcha. Anyone's curious. 
So I just, I wanted to end on this note. When Marnie was asked about why there's so much sex in her paintings, she said, quote, without sex, life is like food without salt. I love her. So the next time y'all are getting sexy, yeah, think of that. Salt. You're welcome. It's great. It's great. Oh, yeah. my grandma really liked salt. Oh, 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 you ruined it. You ruined it. <laughs> I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> oh. No, you can't. You can't. <laughs> oh. oh, my goodness. So that is I Gustai Ayukari Murnash, also known as IGK Murnash, or as Murni. So almost feel good. Almost. Almost. Yeah. Would you Would you say 90% feel good? 85? Eh, 85. Okay. See, I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure where to put it. Okay, it would have been 90 if it were just those, like, those two captains in her life, but then you throw in the, like, the revolution of the people and, like, the the censorship of the people and it just is... Okay, yeah, but that should make it more impressive that even growing up under those fairly restrictive gendered ideas that she was able to push past that and create art that really spoke to her personal experience and also commentary on the very tight gender and social positions of women within Polynesian Indonesian culture. I, look, I, I didn't say it wasn't impressive. I just said that it was 85% positive. I know. I know. So, okay, yeah. So uh, my pinky promise, I might have kind of broke it, but so we got giant dicks today. So many giant dicks. I'm very happy. <laughs> so, Milana, if people want to see pictures of those giant dicks, where can they go? Yay! Best segue ever. <laughs> you can find the giant dicks at myfavoritefeminist.com. We have uh, Facebook and Instagram, both under My Favorite Feminist. Our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. And if you want to email us, let us know how you're feeling. It's info at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can listen to us on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and iTunes. I guess now it's called Apple. I feel old. And if you feel so inclined, please, it takes two seconds to rate, subscribe, hit that like button, whatever you need to do to let us know. Show us your support and let us know in the comment section below. After hearing about the horribly devastating, disfiguring, and deadly diseases that you can contract while in tropical areas, will that hinder your travel? I mean, if not, COVID will. Well, I mean, yeah, that's also part of it, too. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know. Would you travel knowing the many ways you can die? I would. If you guys have made it this far, you're really awesome. And we super appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Bye. I don't know what I want for dinner, but I'm hungry. I'm so hungry.